long as I can remember, I've been fascinated with disasters, what happened, why it happened, and what we can learn from them. As an anxious person, learning about these whys helps me feel more in control of my own safety. As an empath, I just want to know and tell the human stories behind these disasters. Who survived, who didn't, and most importantly, how they lived. I'm Jenny, the Disaster Queen, and I hate that disasters happen, but since they're gonna, I want to learn from them. Whether it's an act of God, act of man, or accident, I'll cover it all here. So I hope you'll buckle up real tight and come along for the ride with me. This is the Disaster Queen Podcast. Imagine you're an eight-year-old schoolgirl at 9.15 on a Friday morning. You've just gotten to school 15 minutes ago, and you're waiting for your teacher to start math class, but you can hardly concentrate on addition and subtraction today. It's the last day before half-term, which means it's only a half-day of school. You'll be home for lunch with your mother and your five siblings in just a couple of hours, and then you get a whole week off of school to run amok with your friends in the hillside into which your small Welsh town is nestled. But all of a sudden, a loud rumbling yanks you out of your daydream. Was that thunder? It was drizzling when you walked to school, but it wasn't storming. Before you can figure that out, your desk begins to shake, and so do your classroom windows. As your teacher yells for you to get under your desk, blackness bursts into your classroom, and you are carried away on a wave of something dark and heavy. Then you pass out. This is the reality of eight-year-old Gaynor Minot and hundreds of other Welsh schoolchildren on October 21st, 1966. I'm Jenny Rapson, and welcome to the Disaster Queen podcast. I'm the Disaster Queen, and today we'll be talking about the October 21st, 1966 Abervan, Wales coal tip disaster, the worst mining-related disaster in British history. It killed 144 people, and the reason I wanted to talk about it is because... Once again, I think not a lot of people know about it, at least not in the United States. And I felt like finally on the Disaster Queen podcast, it was time to get outside the U.S. a bit. So let's get into this disaster. Let me give you a big content warning, big old content warning for death of children. It's not an easy story. Please listen with care or just skip this one if you think you can't handle it. You can also jump over to my website, disasterqueen.com, to read my blog post about this. If you're better on off consuming this kind of information in print rather than hearing it on a podcast. So here we go. Let's do some basic facts about the disaster and the area in which it happened. So Abervan... Wales, which is spelled A-B-E-R-F-A-N, but pronounced as if that F is a V, is a Welsh coal town in the Taff Valley, and it basically only existed because of coal mining. The colliery opened there in 1869, and there were 5,000 people in the village, and a 1,000 worked in the mine. So basically, every family in the village of Abervan was connected to the mine. The mine was called the Merthyr Vale and had never seen a major catastrophe or accident. And at this time in 1966, coal was being displaced by gas and oil. So mines across the UK were closing. However, in Wales, there were still many mines and lots of people were employed. Their livelihood was directly connected to these mines, just like in Abervan. And so the National Coal Board loomed large because it controlled the livelihoods 
of a huge number of Welsh families and all pretty much of the Abervan family specifically. So even if you weren't connected to someone who worked at, well, everybody was connected to someone who worked in the mine, but even if your family member didn't work in the mine in Abervan, basically they were working in the shops of Abervan, the other businesses that only existed because there was a town there and the town only existed because there was a coal mine there. So the coal board had a huge influence on the people of Abervan. However, many lived in poverty or on borderline poverty, but it's interesting that the Welsh children who were interviewed for the documentaries and articles I've used as source materials here actually describe an idyllic 1950s and 1960s childhood with loving, close-knit families and a beautiful natural playground in the Welsh hills. They didn't know any different and they were very happy even if they just had the bare essentials. Several of them talked about how they only had one pair of shoes and when the disaster happened, they were like, oh no, I lost my shoes. What am I going to do? Things like that. It was definitely a simpler time and people had a lot less than they have now. I think a lot of us have too much now, but that's neither here nor there. So I don't know much about coal mining. I learned a lot when I was researching this story, but coal mining, if you didn't know, produces a lot of waste called slurry, which is a fine powdery stuff. And the slurry has to go somewhere. I think one of the big challenges of just about any industry is figuring out what to do with its waste and coal mining is no different. So by 1916, 50 years before this disaster, the colliery at Abervan had run out of room to store coal waste on the valley floor. So they started using the hillside above the village. If you look at pictures of this disaster, you'll see what I mean by the hillside above the village. It definitely was nestled at the bottom of a hill. So eventually there were seven huge piles of coal waste that were constructed and they were basically just giant mountains of coal waste and they were called tips. So you're going to hear me use the word tip or tips a lot in this episode. And what I'm talking about is a huge mountain of coal waste, that fine slurry that we were talking about. So how that would work was a crane would pick up barrels full of waste and dump it onto the pile. And the pile would just get bigger and bigger until it kind of had reached capacity. And then they would start a new coal tip. So we're going to be talking about coal tip number seven, which was the only one active at the time of this incident. All of the other six coal tips had been retired by the Abervan Colliery. They were still there, sitting there, but they were not being added to. The tips were supported by the Minid Murther, which is the mountain on the west side of the Taft Valley. And I'm doing my best to pronounce these Welsh words correctly. Welsh is such a neat, unique language, and I hope I'm not murdering them. I did listen to how to pronounce them online, and so I hope I'm doing a good job. Real apologies if I'm not. I'm really trying. So the tips were supported by this mountain. And tip number seven, like I said, the only one active at this time, was started in 1958. By 1966, the time of our disaster, it contained 297,000 cubic yards of waste, which I don't, my mind won't even like wrap itself around how big of a number that is. I can't imagine that much. I just, I can't picture it, but I know it's, it's, it's an unfathomable, unimaginable amount of fine black coal powder. 30,000 cubic yards were of this extra fine powdery waste called tailings. The other tips did not include tailings. 
and that's sort of important to our disaster. It didn't, it, the tailings didn't cause our disaster, but their presence is important to note because of the way they changed the quality of what overwhelmed the village in the landslide. So tailings were on tip number seven, no tailings on any of the other tips. So like many disasters before, ugh, I hate this. We had kind of a warning sign that this might happen and it went unheeded. In 1944, 22 years before this, tip number four did fail. And a bunch of that tip collapsed in a landslide of coal waste and slid about 600 meters down the hillside. It stopped short of the village. And so no one was hurt. And the people of Abervan would complain about it and, you know, file inquiries with the coal board because they wanted something done about the tips. They were worried it was going to happen again. But the National Coal Board would just say, oh, well, I guess we better close the colliery if it's dangerous. And then the people of Abervan would back off because closing the colliery would end their livelihood and their village. So even though they had that warning in 1944, it went unheeded. The Coal Board wouldn't do anything about it. And this kind of reminds me of NASA, like we talked about in the Columbia disaster. And we will talk about in the future on the Challenger episode, NASA had, you know, kind of many disasters or many things that went wrong, but never killed anybody. <laughs> and so they were like, oh, it never killed anybody. It never blew up a spacecraft. So it's not a risk of flight. We'll just keep, we'll just keep our eye on it, but it's probably fine. This is kind of the same attitude. Well, it didn't hit the village, so everyone's fine. So we just won't do anything about it. It's not great. In the article Tipping Point that I used to research this episode, one geoscientist says, if one definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result, tipping practices above Abervan were truly insane. So that's not great. Uh, the tribunal that convened after the 1966 disaster to inquire into its causes said this, the 1944 slide provided a constant and vivid reminder, if any were needed, that tips built on slopes can and do slip, and having once started, travel long distances. Seems kind of like a no-duh after the fact, but I guess hindsight is really 2020, but the hindsight of 1944 did not help us with 1966, so it's all just super tragic and dumb and senseless, and I hate it, but here we go. Here's what happened. Okay. So as I said in the introduction, that morning of October 21st, 1966 was the last day of school before half term in Abervan. Now, half term is not a, a term that I know uh, in American schools. I'm guessing it was kind of like a fall break or a break between quarters or semesters. Um, but anyway, they were going to get a whole week off. They only had to go a half day this Friday, and then they were going to get a whole week off. The Abervan Junior School, uh, which was called Pant Glass School, had students aged 7 to 10, and they arrived at school at 9. The older kids who went to the senior school, which was nearby, didn't start school till 930, so they weren't in school yet. That morning at the tip, at tip number seven, the workers arrived about 730 a.m. And crane operator Gwen Brown and Slinger, I think the Slinger must be the guy who slings the waste onto the pile. Slinger David Jones inspected the active point of the tip, which they did every morning before starting to add to the pile. Hey, I like that. I like that they're inspecting it every morning. This morning in particular, they did not like what they saw. 
which was that the rails on which the crane traveled had fallen three feet into the pit on top of the coal tip. So that's not good. Not great. They were like, well, that doesn't look good. We better contact the charge hand of the mine. They did not have a telephone at their station. So David Jones had to set off on foot and go from the tip to the active part of the mine to find their charge hand, Leslie Davies, who reported the news to the colliery engineer, whose name was Vivian Thomas. Also, I will note that in these some of these Welsh names are what we would think of the U.S. as feminine, but Vivian Thomas and Gwyn Brown are both males, just so you know. So Vivian Thomas dispatched a team to cut the messed up crane rails and ordered that the tipping be stopped at tip number seven. He said that the following Monday he would come to the site himself and find a new tipping spot. So... Leslie Davies, David Jones, and the rail cutting men made their way back to tip number seven, and they arrived about 9 a.m. They found that the depression in the top of the tip had already doubled in size in less than two hours. That's pretty scary. And Gwen Brown was then ordered to move the crane further back from the tip. But first, the other men decided to retire to their cabin up there at the tip for a cuppa, because, you know, they're very British. And they left Brown alone out there while they were having their tea. And as he stood there, he saw the depression at the top of the pit begin to rise back up toward him. That had to be so freaking scary. Here's a quote from Gwen Brown at the investigative tribunal that happened after the disaster. He said, it started slowly at first. I thought I was seeing things. Then it rose up after pretty fast at a tremendous speed. Then it sort of came up out of the depression and turned itself into a wave. That is the only way I can describe it. Down towards the mountain, toward Abervan village, into the mist. So he started screaming and yelling his head off, because obviously. And that, his screams, brought his colleagues out of the cabin, and they all successfully ran for their lives as cult of number seven started to fail and become a 140,000 cubic yard avalanche of coal waste hurtling down the hillside on its way down it destroyed a farmhouse and some cottages and killed all the people within them it also broke a water main which is important and then it plowed into the pant glass junior school where 240 children between the ages of 7 and 10 were inside having class on their last day of school before half term the school was completely overwhelmed by the gazillions of pounds of slurry and 109 children and five teachers were killed in the school. 116 children and 28 adults were killed overall. There were some students from the junior, I'm sorry, the senior school that were killed. There were three boys sitting on a wall waiting for one of their friends to join them before they walked to school together. And the friend approaching them saw the avalanche coming down at them and yelled at his mates to run, but they could not get out in time. And so he watched his friends die as he ran away. He's interviewed in one of the BBC documentaries that I've got in the show notes. You should really watch it. It is, it's an excellent, it's, it's very well done. And it's an excellent tribute to the, the memories of those who died as well. And those who lived through it. So, Immediately, townspeople and miners were at the scene trying to dig with whatever tools they had. Now, I mentioned this slurry broke a water main on its way down. So not only were they dealing with 
tons and tons and tons and tons of cool waste. They also had water flowing everywhere, which just made everything worse. And just like in the Kansas City Hyatt disaster, we did have some trapped victims in danger of drowning because of this. So pe people were working, trying to shovel the sludge out while they were standing in water. Now, the slurry was wet because it had been raining and then the water main, but as soon as it began to dry, it immediately hardened. I don't know if that makes it worse, better or worse to dig through, but that's just another thing that I learned about coal waste. So much knowledge about coal waste now. Uh, they did pull about 20 people out, but no one was pulled out alive after two hours. So after about 11, 15, 11, 30 a.m. that morning, no one came out alive. Part of the reason I chose this disaster was because I saw that it was portrayed on an episode of The Crown. I can't remember if it was season, I think it was season three. And... I was interested to see what the truth was versus how it was portrayed. So uh, if you guys have watched it, I mean, I highly recommend The Crown anyway. I have big love for Queen Elizabeth, but may she rest in peace. But they portrayed her as kind of like cold and unfeeling and not wanting to come to Abervane at all. And I don't really think that was the situation. But whether it was or not, she did not come for eight days and she has said publicly that it was one of her greatest regrets of her reign but at the time she was advised that her presence would be too much of a distraction to the rescue and recovery and to the grieving families but she faced a lot of criticism from the UK out widely in the UK for not coming sooner however her husband Prince Philip visited the next day and her brother-in-law Lord Snowden who was married to her sister princess margaret margaret came very soon as well with a shovel in his suitcase he said because he was welsh and he wanted to get in there and help so what i have read from all my research and seen was that most of the survivors do not fault the queen for not coming for eight days after survivor gareth jones one of the children um in the school said to me she held back as a mark of respect to the families who lost children and another um survivor or victim's family member said the queen waited for the dust to settle i still think it was the right thing to do she was showing respect to the people of abervan jeff edwards another child in the school echoed that sentiment as did mother of victim marilyn brown i'm sorry marilyn brown whose daughter was a victim her daughter Jeanette was killed she she recalled you could see that when the queen came she was quite emotional you could see that she cared you know and in the crown, they, they, like I said, they depict her as cold and unfeeling and like faking emotion. I don't know. I mean, at the time in 1966, she had like a six-year-old and a two-year-old as well as her older children. So as a mother myself, I kind of doubt that she was cold and unfeeling. I kind of tend to believe she was emotional. I just, I don't see how you, a woman who had such unswerving duty to her country could... I don't see how she could be unaffected by that. But whatever. The crown portrayed her as cold as ice. But the people of Abervan seem to be fans. So I guess you guys can decide what you think is true. Of course, there was an investigation into this horrible, horrible disaster. Uh, one thing that I failed to mention earlier, I did mention it hit a water main when it was cruising down the mountain was that there was actually a natural spring underneath tip number seven. So a lot of the kids who are interviewed in these documentaries that I've watched and read, which I will again put in the show notes, mentioned that they used to play in that spring on the mountain. They used to dam it up and try to make swimming a little swimming pool. 
before tip number seven grew so big that it covered it over. Um, so right away, people began blaming the spring and the water, the fact that it had been raining for several days um, for the disaster. But Lord Robins, who was the head of the National Coal Board, vehemently denied responsibility and on his first visit to the town said, how would anyone know that there was water under the tips? His first visit after the disaster. And that that was just an outright lie or else extreme, extreme ignorance because it was common knowledge to everyone in the town and everyone who worked at the mine that there was a spring that ran under tip seven. So Lord Robins and tons of other people from the National Coal Board, as well as miners, survivors, um, citizens of Upper Van, testified at the tribunal that looked into this and they took testimony for 76 days. So it was a pretty big uh, investigation. And one of the most damning things that they heard was that the men responsible for citing tip seven or originally, you know, making sure it was a good spot to put a tip basically were Ronald Neil Lewis group manager and Joseph Baker group mechanical engineer. Neither had any background or education in tip design, civil engineering, or geology. No survey was taken, no consideration of geological or geographical features given, and no guidance as to its ultimate extent was ever issued to Vivian Thomas, the colliery engineer, whose job it became to supervise it. So one of the most telling pieces of evidence laid out before the tribunal was that when Lewis and Baker set up set off up Mitted Merther to decide the sighting of tip number seven. They took no map with them of any kind. I mean, triple yikes. That just seems a grossly criminally negligent to me. The board determined that the same problems with tip number four in 1944, the big warning had indeed caused the fall of tip seven. So basically instability, water underneath it, and lack of good engineering. So yay. So yeah, they did not correct that. The coal board was like, quit bothering us about this. We don't have the time or energy to mess with this. Nobody was nobody was killed. What are you complaining about? And it resulted in the worst coal mining disaster in UK history 22 years later. A quote from the article Tipping Point says, for the site of Tip 7, National Coal Board managers turned to land south of the mineral line immediately downslope from tip four, which had slipped in 1944. This meant that tip seven's growth trajectory would eventually take it directly across the slipped material from tip four and the very same water course that had caused that failure. But as the tribunal report noted, no one gave any thought to the ultimate maximum area of tip seven. So basically, the natural spring under coal tip seven saturated it with water, became too heavy and unstable to stay put, and raced down the mountain, crushing hundreds of people. They knew that water caused a problem as tip four had also covered, you know, that stream and shoddy construction was also blamed. Here's the part about the tribunal and really the whole disaster that just really burns my biscuits. No specific person was held liable at the National Coal Board and no one lost their job. There was basically no accountability for this epic disaster and tragic loss of very young life. And for the parents and the people of Abervan, they were just justifiably incensed that no one was held accountable for this. 
I mean, no one was fired. They said the National Coal Board is responsible, but no one lost their jobs. No one got demoted. And there were no consequences. There was no punishment whatsoever. The tribunal said the causes were, and I quote, inappropriate placement, poor tipping methods, ineffective management, site conditions, which means the spring. And these were exacerbated by a lot of recent rainfall. So, like I said, they didn't hold one person responsible, but they did say there was no shortage of genuine culprits. <laughs> no villains in this harrowing story of bungling ineptitude by many men charged with tasks for which they were totally unfitted. Decent men led astray by foolishness or by ignorance or by both in combination. So the tribunal's like findings are basically just like, yeah, we had the wrong men for the job. I mean, they were genuine culprits and uh, they, they were totally inept, but they weren't villains. So we're just going to let them slide. I mean, I don't. Yeah. I don't. What do you even say to that? It's just insane. I don't know how the people of Abervan have been able to move on and have closure with just zero responsibility given or taken. In their grief in the aftermath, immediate aftermath of the disaster, there were many funerals, but they did have one mass funeral and grave for 81 victims, which if you see pictures of that, it's just the worst. Um, I, I don't, I just, I can't, I don't know how these people made it through this. Many families lost more than one child. Um, there was also a mother and child, child killed together. I mentioned the families too in the, in the farmhouses on the way down the mountain. So families were just hugely, hugely impacted. And because Abervan was so small, I mean, yeah, I mean, it impacted literally everyone. Uh, tons of money was at least raised for the Abervan Relief Fund. And a huge, beautiful memorial was built with 116 identical white marble arches. You can see pictures of that on the interwebs. It is beautiful. The people from Abervan, of course demanded the removal of the remaining coal tips and there were still those six coal tips on the hillside above the village and the government of wales balked at this at first but then a group of men from Abervan and women actually took a couple of huge bags of slurry to wales's state offices and dumped them in the reception area so some civil disobedience and protests going on i quite i quite enjoy that kudos to them so after this Wales' Secretary of State, George Thomas, agreed to get rid of the tips. And they did, but it took years. And the National Coal Board and the government both refused to pay for it. Great job, guys. Way to take care of your people. So the 150,000 pounds needed to pay for it came from the Abervan Relief Fund, Relief Fund, which was supposed to help the, the victims. Vic many victims needed to recover. I mean, there were many wounded children in the hospital for months. And then, of course, you know, 28 adults died. So there were fa families with lost income. And some of that money had to go to pay for the removal of the tips. That also makes me cray cray. Good old Tony Blair's government did pay this back a good 41 years later in 1997, but without adjustment for inflation or interest. So I, get, I give Tony some credit, but could have gone could have gone the extra mile and given them some some interest or something. Um, now, I will say that this disaster, thank God, did make this world a safer place. So definitely want to mention that. 
before there was like very little legislation about coal tips. And after this, the Mine and Quarries Tips Act was passed in 1969 to better regulate the use of mining tips. And it made a huge improvement. Uh, like I said, previously zero legislation before this. And from the article Abervan's Engineering Legacy, it says the immediate effect of this, meaning the act, was that the National Coal Board and the Welsh Development Agency invested over 50 million pounds into investigations of existing tips in improving their stability. However, the most significant outcome was that future tips were properly planned, cited, and designed to endure stability. As a result, there have only been a handful of minor tip failures since. So that is a positive legacy of Abervan. It is one of those disasters that immediately people learned from, put that knowledge into action and made the world at large and the mining industry and mining waste storage a much, much safer process. And there hasn't been any loss of life due to coal tips since. So hallelujah for that. Okay, let's talk about the hard part. Super hard part, you guys, is the survivors and victims. There is a really great podcast that I highly recommend if you want to get in really into survivor and victim stories. Um, It's called it's a BBC podcast. It's called Abervan Tip Number Seven. It's nine episodes, and I think you should check it out while you're waiting for the next episode of Disaster Queen to drop. And I learned a lot from it. Between that and some BBC articles, which quote a lot of a lot of that, the interviews kind of um, overlap. I learned a ton about uh, particularly a couple different survivors: Jeff Edwards and Gaynor Minot, which I meant I told Gaynor's story in the introduction a little bit, but. Nearly 50% of all families in Abervan lost a loved one. And I think you could say 100% lost someone they knew, lost a neighbor. Um, There's one point in one of the documentaries of someone showing a a map of Abervan and saying, oh, yeah, there was three people from this street, four people from this street over here. Like, it was just a pervasive disaster. So let's start by talking about Jeff Edwards. He was eight years old at the time. He was in Pant Glass Junior School. And he was the last surviving child pulled out alive. So you can see pictures of him. I think his bright blonde hair being pulled out alive. And he says, one minute you were a young lad looking forward to the half-term holidays, waiting for the lesson to start. And the next minute I had death on my shoulder and I had to grow up very, very quickly. My life had totally changed. And what he means by death on his shoulder was that he was trapped in the slurry. He was alive, but he had a dead classmate's head a little girl, literally resting on his shoulder. And he said that his physical injuries healed quickly, but the psychological injuries caused by that would really never be dealt with. Um, He said when he woke up, he remembered waking up with all this material on top of him and all this material was over me and all these screams and shouts, but the lasting memory for me was the young girl's head on my shoulder. When I think of the disaster, that image was going to cause problems for many years to come. So tragic. And I know that, you know, mental health wasn't talked about and dealt with nearly as much as it is today. And we still need more awareness and acceptance today of mental illness or (laughs) PTSD, um, trauma, trauma recovery. And that is certainly something that Jeff experienced and didn't have a lot of resources to recover in the 1960s in Wales. Um, So I talked about Gaynor Minot. Her married name is Madgewick. She was eight years old and she lost 
a brother and a sister. She had six siblings. There were two others with her at school that day, her only brother and her sister, Carl and Marilyn. She's the one who was waiting for her teacher to begin math when she heard the terrible loud noise and when she did pass out, but she woke up trapped and her legs were broken. And she also had an experience with death. She says, I remember distinctly there was another child's arm that had gone through a crack in the wall from the other classroom and it was just hanging. I don't know why, but for some reason I was just holding on, pinching this hand and wanted this hand to move. When I look back now and I heard my brother had died, I always hold on to the hope that with me holding on to that child's hand, it could have been my brother's. I hold on to that and it gives me comfort. It's so hard, you guys. I hate it so much. I'm so glad that they sprung into action and figured out how to keep this from happening again. Both Gaynor and Jeff Edwards said that their families never talked about the disaster afterward, leaving them to deal with their psych issues in silence and solitude. I, It's just so... As a mom, that's like crazy to me. I know it was a different time, but like my kid has a bad day at school and I'm like, please tell me all of your feelings. <laughs> like, let's talk about it. I just, I bet their parents were traumatized too. You know, they're in, in Gaynor's case, she lost two siblings. Her parents were grieving the deaths of two children. And then Gaynor was in the hospital for months and months afterwards. And, you know, I'm sure they were doing the best they could, but dang. I hate that those kids did not get the mental health therapy that they needed. And as we talked about also extensively in the Kansas City Hyatt episode and in the Boston Marathon bombing episode, first responders need mental health help too. There was one rescuer whose testimony totally shook me. His name is Sir Mansell Aylward. And at the time, he wasn't a sir yet. He was a 23-year-old medical student driving home for a christening and he had to drive through Abervan. But he was stopped on the road because the road into Ebervan was blocked off due to the incident, and he did not know what had happened. When they realized that he had a medical badge on his car, they sent him ahead to help. And he says in the BBC article, Up until recently, I couldn't talk about this, but what I saw will never leave my mind. All the children were at their desks, and they were covered in sludge, mud, and had obviously died by suffocation. The teacher was dead as well, and he was standing in front of the children with his arms out as if trying to protect them. That really, really affected me. Oh, my gosh. Give it up for first responders and for teachers, everybody. Whoo! It's just, ugh. I hate it. I mean, you guys know I love telling disaster stories, and I love learning about disasters, but oh, my gosh. I hate it for these people. I'm an, I'm an empath and like I can feel their pain. It's so hard. Um, this tragedy in Abervan really left a huge generation gap of approximately 8 to 11 year olds. There were some kids younger, um, as young as five killed and I think even younger in those form- farmhouses on the way down the mountain. But one of the parents who lost an eight-year-old daughter, uh, Ted Bartlett, lost his daughter, Edwina. He said for many years... We saw no local engagements and weddings. It was very sad. There's just like this huge group, age group, where nothing, where there's nobody, there's nothing happening. I just, it's very hard to imagine the ripple effects that this disaster is still having today. Now, there were 144 people lost. I obviously can't talk about every single one and all their families, but I do have a link in the show notes to the list of 
all the names of those who died in the Abervan coal tip disaster. And I would love it if you guys would click through there. It's on my website. It's in the show notes. should be in the show notes in your podcast app, but also it's on my website in the blog post about this. Um, I'll have some photos and things of the memorial. But I also, I really want you to click through and just read all those beautiful Welsh names. Notice how many came from the same family. Notice that they're, in some cases, you know, there's mothers and children that lost their lives together. And just give each name a few seconds of your time and really think about and honor those lost lives of Abervan, October 21st, 1966. That is it. That's the Abervan coal tip disaster. It's super horrible. Thank you for sticking with me through this tale of the worst mining disaster that UK has ever seen. And it wasn't even in a mine. Like the miners didn't die. Like their families did. Oh, I hate it. So stick with me. I appreciate you guys being here and riding this disaster roller coaster with me. It's been so much fun. I appreciate your support. And I hope you'll leave me a rating or a review wherever you listen to podcasts. That really helps other people find the show. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter. And reposting and retweeting my stuff and sharing me with your friends would mean the absolute world. So I hope you won't keep Disaster Queen to yourself. You can bring some more disaster dreamers into our disaster pod squad. Stay tuned. Next week, I have another terrible yeah, wonderful story for you because it's like, I don't want to give too much away, but I shouldn't say next week in two weeks. It's kind of like my hometown disaster. It's kind of like the disaster that started it all for me. So, all right, that's the only clue I will give you for now, but check out my Instagram for more clues and teasers about what's coming up. And thank you guys so much for joining me. Don't be like me and be a disaster. This is actually my second attempt at recording this episode because I managed to delete the first one because you see, you guys, I am the disaster queen. All right. Thanks for hanging with me. Have a great week, everybody. The Disaster Queen podcast is written, researched, and produced by me, Jenny Rapson, the disaster queen. Original theme music and sound engineering by Robert Rapson. Editing is by Josh Rapson. You can get him for your editing needs at joshrapson.edits at gmail.com. Original podcast artwork is by Ken Clark, and DisasterQueen.com website design is by Hello Chicky Design. Check her link in the show notes for all your site design needs. All show notes can be found at DisasterQueen.com. Got an episode suggestion? Email me at DisasterQueenPod at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow at DisasterQueenPod on Instagram and at DisasterQPod on Twitter.